The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another edition of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. One of the topics that we have talked about extensively is the role of the federal government in archaeological work here in the United States. Uh, The government has played a very critical role in a variety of different um, venues and in a variety of contexts and programs. And it's a complicated maze of regulatory responsibilities as well as laws. And in general, as we've discussed in previous programs, the agencies that are responsible for regulatory issues are the ones that are being affected by a construction project or by a development issue um, that involves a particular segment of the federal landscape. However, the National Park Service has been at the forefront of both designing and stipulating how archaeology is done in many ways. It's probably the longest standing uh, unified operation for archaeology um, in in the country, and they are celebrating their centennial. And the National Park Service, I think, over time has probably been the most efficiently run operation. And my my next guest will probably tell me things about that that uh, I probably should know, and maybe I'm just uh, over-glossing it. But uh, it's certainly the National Park Service has uh, certainly, in in my mind, in the mind of many professional archaeologists, been sort of the standard bearer for doing Uh, archaeology in the United States. My guest today is none other than the chief archaeologist for the National Park Service and the departmental consulting archaeologist for the Department of Interior, and that is uh, Dr. Stanley Bond. Uh, Welcome to the program, Dr. Bond. Well, thank you so much for having me on, and uh, I appreciate this opportunity. Why don't you give us a little bit of background as to the role of the National Park Service uh, historically, because we are talking about 100 years, and we're also talking about probably the first organization that really uh, implemented the earliest Antiquities Act. 
Well, I think we can just start off with the Organic Act that established the National Park Service, and a portion of that says, which purpose is to conserve the scenery and the national and historic objects and the wildlife you're in, and to provide for the enjoyment of the same in such manner and by such means as will leave them unimpaired for the enjoyment of future generations. And so the National Park Service's mandate has been one of preservation and protecting of uh, cultural resources throughout the system. And when did, it, when did all this start, and, and what, are, what were sort of the early days of the National Park Service's involvement in the system, and how did it evolve in, in the early part of the 20th century? Well, I think certainly, um, you know, we would have to go back to sites like uh, Mesa Verde as some of the earliest uh, sites and the earliest reasons that uh, the Park Service exists. And in fact, um, the development of the Antiquities Act came out of issues at Mesa Verde uh, National Park uh, where, um, where archaeologists from, um, from, from Sweden were doing work and taking objects back to uh, Europe for their museums. And we recognized that we wanted to keep that cultural patrimony here in the United States. And, and therefore, um, the concerns out of that we ultimately went and developed um, the Antiquities Act and made parks like Mesa Verde and, and many others, either national parks or national monuments, either through legislative or through uh, executive orders, which, um, which preserved those sites. Uh, many of those sites started out in the, in the southwest, but ultimately sites in the east became protected, such as uh, Oak Mogie, uh, Castillo de San Marcos, and Fort Matanzas in Florida, a number of, uh, of sites. Uh, many of our most important archaeological sites have been protected by the Antiquities Act under uh, executive orders signed by various presidents. So it basically began in the Southwest where, you know, for lack of a better word, the sexiest sites were and certainly the most glamorous sites that that were almost above ground were, were identified. And then it sort of systematically moved to other parts of the country, right? I mean, that's how it, 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 it expanded as as national parks were designated. Uh, I think, yes, in general, that tends to be true that... Um, that the early sites were those were those monumental sites where you could see the ruins and and actually the um, the native peoples that were uh, associated with those ruins were still living cultures in those areas and then over time uh, archaeological sites expanded eastward to toward you know into the east coast into those areas where we then ultimately recognized there were important sites so whether they're in the Midwest like Hopewell Culture or Effigy Mounds or whether uh, again, like places like Okmogee, um, we we recognize just um, vast numbers of archaeological sites throughout the system. One of the things that that struck me early in my career, and I started doing this type of work in the 1970s, was that, and I think a lot of archaeologists from my generation probably make this association as well, is that the regulations and that the protocols for doing phase one, phase two, and phase three testing were sort of integrated into the National Park Service system and that the protocols for actually doing this work were 
part of uh, sort of the plan laid out by the National Park Service. Um, is, is that correct, or, or was it uh, was the law sort of integrated separately from the National Park Service? Did, did it develop those protocols and and then have them in, uh, incorporated into the uh, into the actual legislation? Well, I you know I think that the you know, Secretary of the Interior is the primary name for the National Historic Preservation Act. And so, right. of course, many of those regulations came out of, uh, out of archaeology that was being done within the Park Service and, and how we went about doing that work. And, and uh, many of those regulations were developed through the Office of the Departmental Consulting Archaeologist. So certainly the National Park Service uh, had important uh, part of establishing uh, how uh, archaeology would be done in terms of uh, compliance archaeology within the within the United States. Then, of course, the Park Service itself itself has to comply with those regulations as well. Tell us a little bit about uh, the centennial and and how you're moving along with that, and what kind of program you you uh, want to initiate, and how it's moving along. What is the objective? Uh, what is what is the nature of the outreach, and and how is that moving? Well, for our centennial celebrations, of course, um, many parks are highlighting archaeology throughout the centennial year. Um, this year, many parks are participating in uh, International Archaeology Day, which is going to fall uh, on October 17th. And we have a partnership with the uh, Archaeological Institute of America to work with them on, on International Archaeology Day. And next year, we look towards International Archaeology Day as a day where we really highlight archaeology in the National Park Service, the 100 years of archaeology that's happened within the National Park Service and within the national parks. Um, we also have a program coming up this year in January with the Society for Historical Archaeology, whose meetings are here in Washington, D.C., and part of those meetings are celebrating the centennial of the National Park Service and the 50th anniversary of the National Historic Preservation Act. And we have several symposia that are specifically Park Service symposia there at those meetings, as well as a number of other papers, you know, sprinkled throughout sessions within, within that um, event. And, but as I said, we'll also be having um, parks will be doing all kinds of interesting and important archaeological programs throughout the year, and people can reach out to the parks that they're going to be visiting to find out exactly what might be happening in them. What would you say were the high points of, say, let, let's look at the, at the broader reach of 100 years. What are the high points in the National Park Service's uh, programs in archaeology that got it to the, the state that it is today, where I really think it's sort of looked at, certainly by the, the professional community and, and by a lot of people who are more than avocational archaeologists as sort of the model for how we do archaeology, because these are protected lands and there are preservation programs that sort of can be done, I would say, in generally in, a, in, in almost an idealized environment because these, these landscapes are protected. What are the, key, what are the high, highlights of, say, a 100-year reach of, of National Park Service work? Well, I, I think that we can look at the Park Service and see that we preserve many of the, the most significant archaeological sites in the nation that the, the sites that we preserve are nationally significant sites. And, and what's important about those sites in the Park Service 
whether they're nationally significant or whether or any site in the Park Service, uh, it through preservation, the Park Service now has become a laboratory for understanding past cultures, but it's also become an understanding uh, a laboratory for understanding the physical processes that affect archaeological resources over time and things like. Uh, sea level rise and climate change and um, you know fire and erosion and all of those kinds of factors that come in and affect uh, affect archaeological resources over time. We can monitor that over time and and begin to understand those processes and how they might affect archaeological sites. Then certainly, I think um, you know over time, excavation at archaeological sites has provided. You know the significant information uh, historically that archaeologists have used to uh, develop theories of uh, culture change and uh, movement and pattern, uh, given us the ability to develop chronologies, uh, not only um, ceramic chronologies, but uh, things, but the work that's been done in the Southwest on uh, tree ring dating certainly uses uh, important data that's been taken from parks like Chaco and Mesa Verde. Uh, and so, um, you know, those have been the types, I think, of projects that have had uh, national and maybe international significance in our understanding and moving forward uh, archaeological methods and theories. So does the Park Service have, for lack of a better term, pure research uh, scopes of work that they issue to to sort of address broader issues like you had mentioned climate change and certainly uh, the work that's been done on dendrochronology and tree ring dating in the southwest is is a classic example of of how much the park service what what a great role the park service has played in just sort of developing methodological and as you had said before chronological innovations in trying to place for example cultural sequences uh, and nail the down. Are they still doing that in, in this day and age? There, there are scopes of work that are uh, specifically designed for methodological advancement. Are they doing that? Absolutely. Uh, especially, I think, on, um, on methods that are, uh, that, um, don't, are non-destructive techniques. So things like uh, ground-penetrating radar, uh, soil resistivity surveys, magnetometer types of surveys, now the use of, uh, of LIDAR, uh, 3D imaging, uh, photogrammetry. We have a number of projects now that focus on those non-destructive techniques where we can preserve archaeological data but yet not actually have to go and, uh, and, and take it out, something out of the ground. Because as we know, I mean, archaeology is just as destructive as uh, any any looter on a site, and what makes us different is the records that we keep over time and our ability to put that information back together again. But if we can get that information from sites without actually having to destroy them at the same time, then I think that we've contributed significantly to how we can do research in, a, in broader areas. You bring up a very major point, and I think it's a point that a lot of archaeologists have centered on recently, and that is the question of preservation in place and the utilization of methods that are non-destructive in nature, in part 
I think that's because uh, our perspectives have been, well, 50, 50 or 100 years down the road, we will have uh, technologies and recovery methods and detection methods that uh, will be so much more efficient that, that we don't have to do any, any retrieval of information. Where do you stand on that? I mean, at some point, do we have to physically re retrieve evidence of material cu culture, or can we just say, okay, we'll leave everything in place and we will document it as carefully as possible because for example in in other venues i mean when something is being removed there's no question that that has to be done but in the case of the park service that's not not as imperative an issue unless there is some kind of a facility that has to be built on the property how do you stand on that well I, you know i think beyond the kinds of surveys that we do in terms of one you know uh, NHPA Section 110 type surveys, right. uh, where we're just trying to locate sites so we can protect them and preserve them. Um, I think that preservation in place is definitely uh, the way that the Park Service is going. And again, you know, I go back to the Organic Act is our intent is to leave things unimpaired uh, for the future. And, and so by leaving something intact and in place, and we have the opportunity in the future to do research on it that may, as you say, may, uh, uh, may be non-destructive in nature, and, and yet we may still be able to get the same kinds of information that we need. And we're definitely striving towards those areas. Uh, but as well, of course, we have development in parks, which require uh, a variety of uh, 106 types of projects, and at times require uh, mitigation and removal of uh, of archaeological data. Right. Uh, we will be back with this very fascinating discussion with Dr. Stanley Bond, who is the Chief Archaeologist for the National Park Service and the Departmental Ar Consulting Archaeologist for the Department of Interior, right after these words. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Your best legal defense is the show that's here to answer your legal questions. Hosted by Lonnie McDowell, one of the top 100 California criminal defense trial attorneys, our program will answer your questions about the criminal justice system, even if you need to be anonymous. Lonnie demonstrates a firm understanding of the legal system and his guests have experience in a number of facets of the law. Be prepared. Tune in. Your best legal defense airs Saturdays at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in each week for Monica Phillips and Powerful Conversations. This is a thought-provoking show for business people, leaders, and entrepreneurs. We'll feature today's thought leaders and industry trendsetters from across several locations and industries. Give yourself permission to be inspired and live a fulfilling life. 
Be sure to listen to Powerful Conversations live every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein with uh, our second segment in a very unique program on the uh, role of the National Park Service in archaeology in the United States. And we have been talking to uh, Dr. Stanley Bond, who is the chief archaeologist for the National Park Service and the departmental consulting archaeologist for the Department of the Interior. Uh, Dr. Bond, why don't you tell us a little bit about the organization of the Park Service vis-a-vis archaeology, how they do their programs, how they implement them, and then uh, we'll discuss a little bit about the outreach and the contemporary uh, objectives of what the Park Service is doing. Okay, great. Uh, Well, start out by saying that uh, currently within the Park Service, within our uh, 408 current uh, National Park units, almost a third of those parks are cultural parks of some kind. And so, um, of course, Many of those parks are archaeologically related, and we, it's, so when we talk about national parks, uh, many people think about the big national parks, the, uh, you know, Yosemites and the Grand Canyons and the Yellowstones. And those parks do have a designation called, you know, a national park, but we have name designations on many other parks that aren't called purely national parks. So we have, uh, national historic sites, national historical parks. We have a national battlefield parks or national military parks. We have uh, homes to specific historic figures like presidents and other kinds mm-hmm. of historic figures. And so, um, so we have many varieties of cultural parks within the system. But, but I want to say that every park within the system, I believe, has some archaeological component to that park or to that unit. And so even though um, parks like the Grand Canyon or Everglades were established you know, primarily for their natural resources and their natural beauty, they have large numbers of very significant cultural and archaeological sites. And so we don't want to overlook those resources when we're talking about those big, you know, beautiful natural national parks. Well, in that connection, I was going to ask you, um, uh, and this is just purely out of curiosity, are are there tracts right now that are being designated national parks? And if so, are and and in historical context, were were there any parks that were designated purely on the basis of archaeological sites? Well, uh, certainly. I mean, Mesa Verde being being the first, of course, one, but uh, Casa Grande, Gila Ruins. I mean, many. Many uh, parks have been designated purely on their um, on their archaeological resources, uh, but 
we do track, we do have tracks now for how we want to look at um, new parks that are being established within the system. And we're looking at parks that tell uh, stories that we don't currently have a park that might tell that part of the, of the American story. And so, uh, so just for instance, one of the parks that we're looking at uh, potentially establishing in the future is a park uh, on uh, post-Civil War Reconstruction because that's a, a story within the, that we don't really tell within the service and we don't really have a park within the service right now that that's its primary uh, interpretive focus. So, yes, yeah, so we do think about when we establish new parks, you know, what are the kinds of, uh, what are the kinds of parks, what are the kinds of stories that we want those parks to tell the public? Your mission in doing that, designating new parks, um, a couple of questions on that. Have you designated a number of them in the recent past? And how difficult is it to designate a park in this day and age and under the present, uh, for lack of a better word, political system? How difficult is it to, to push that kind of legislation through Congress? Well... Fortunately, uh, the president has executive power under the Antiquities Act to establish right. national monuments, and um, and President Obama has established 19 national monuments since uh, becoming uh, president of the United States. And uh, many of those monuments—I don't have the exact number off the top of my head—but many of those monuments have become have come into the national park system and have become parks within our within our system, and uh, and. I think probably most of those parks have been uh, cultural parks, but some, uh, a recent one, uh, uh, Valles Calendra uh, Park and Preserve, has uh, really both spectacular natural and cultural resources, and it's been recognized uh, as having both of those important elements is why it was brought into, into the system as a, as a national monument. So let's uh, talk a little bit about the organization of the Park Service vis-a-vis archaeological components of the various parks. How does it work? How does the system work? And, and obviously you're on the top of it and you oversee it. What are the internal dynamics and, 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 and how, how do we go about uh, performing archaeological work in the National Park Service? How is it done? Well, I can, maybe I want to start out by saying that we do have a uh, central database that contains information on all the known parks within the National Park Service. And uh, currently we have almost 79,000 known sites within, within national parks. Uh, but that only includes a survey of about 3% of our lands with uh, systematic archaeological surveys. Um, and, of course, many of those lands are up in Alaska. So if you exclude the Alaska lands, maybe we've done surveys on about 15% of our, um, our lands in the you know, continental United States and our territories and, and Hawaii and, and, and our far-flung sites. And we have to remember that we have sites all the way from, you know, the Caribbean to the Arctic. We have sites all the way out into the Pacific and the Guam and Samoa and Saipan. So, uh, so the span of parks in the system, and many of those parks are archaeological in nature, uh, is, is quite broad and quite wide. Um, with that being said, uh, currently the number of archaeologists in the National Park Service, uh, we have uh, 202 archaeologists throughout the National Park Service. 
most of those archaeologists are stationed in uh, individual parks uh, somewhere, um, but we do have two major uh, centers that conduct archaeological research and uh, for their regions. We have a center in the southeast region and a center in the Midwest region. And along with that, we also have uh, a submerged resources unit, which covers primary, which really primarily covers um, underwater cultural resources or submerged cultural resources. So um, that's kind of our our setup. And so uh, here at the Washington office, the archaeology program, including me, there are only uh, four archaeologists here in the Washington office, and then. Uh, each, reach, each of the seven regions in the Park Service has a regional archaeologist with a staff. Um, the, the more centralized staff are in the two uh, offices that I mentioned in the southeast region and in the Midwest region. And then uh, individual parks uh, have archaeologists or, or potentially more than one archaeologist within the park to take care of those resources. And, and often parks will share uh, you know, resources back and forth in terms of archaeologists or archaeological technicians. And, and as well, we bring on, um, you know, technicians and others to work in parks uh, during the summer and other periods when it's necessary. And, but much of the work in parks now gets done uh, through con- contracts and cooperative agreements with, uh, with universities and other uh, or nonprofit groups. Uh, you had mentioned uh, universities and nonprofit groups uh, years ago. Um, there was uh, extensive uh, hiring of uh, small firms and um, small and companies to do that kind of work. I mean, obviously, you have a, a staff of two hundred and two. Uh, those, I assume, are permanent full-time members of of, of your st- of the system. Are you still contracting with companies, or is it all going through universities and nonprofits? No, we we contract through many uh, different companies. So, but that, of course, that becomes up to each uh, each region or even each park as to how they uh, how they how they do that. But we use many different uh, firms that do uh, cultural resource work to to do archaeology in parks, along okay. with uh, with the universities as well. Okay, and and you had talked uh, earlier a little bit about the outreach programs that the Park Service is in, engaged in, and as many of us know, and one of the points we've made in in the past uh, past couple of years on the program is that the pure scientific uh, funding agencies uh, have increasingly diminished budgets, uh, for lack of a better expression. Um, what about what about public outreach, and what are you doing in that sense? to uh, expand the meaning and the application of archaeological uh, information and uh, the need to do archaeology, both in terms of contemporary applications, for example, in, in issues like climate change and understanding sort of the evolution of culture. Uh, what kind of public outreaches, uh, outreach programs have, have uh, you been developing over the past few years? Well, uh, you know, so... In, in what you're talking about, I guess it falls into maybe several different areas, but I'd like to first start out by talking about our outreach programs. And I think that we would all recognize that, um, that often archaeology can tell the story of people whose stories haven't been written down in, in history. So, um, so we look potentially to working with, with those group, groups and have them recognize that the Park Service 
has resources that can help them understand uh, their heritage. And so um, one, of our, one of our big programs in the last few years has been what we call the Urban Archaeology Corps, and it's been working primarily with, uh, with urban youth, with uh, urban minority youth uh, on, arche- on uh, archaeological projects that were going to be carried out uh, within parks, uh, in, in the cities that they're in, it, it initially began in Washington, D.C., but it's expanded the last few years to, uh, to Richmond, uh, to uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee, and to, um, and to the Los Angeles area. So, uh, and, and the purpose, again, is to bring kids in and to show them how archaeology might be important way of accessing their heritage. But we don't only do archaeology, but we also take them into the community, and they do oral histories with, uh, with elders within their community to learn more about what, what's happened over the course of time within that area. Um, they, in turn, take the message out to the, to the broader community about uh, cultural resources, about the park service about how they might go and uh and along with doing that then um the the kids that are are part of the program get to to visit uh, a whole variety of national parks not in, and not just the urban parks but uh some of the other parks uh they get to do camping which many of them have never done in in their lives and uh and it's a it's a great experience for them both to learn about archaeology, the role of archaeology, uh, how it might be important to their lives. But they also learn about the National Park Service and the role of the Park Service and the role of the Park Service of preserving um, the stories of all Americans. And how have those programs fared? I mean, you had, you had mentioned that uh, a lot of inner-city youth uh, don't have any exposure to this type of environment, sort of ex-urban environments in which a lot of kids in the city simply just haven't been exposed to. How has it been received, and how do you see it uh, developing in the future? Well, I mean, I think we've gotten um, a really uh, positive response from the community. Um, You know, many of the kids, I think, have, it has, empowered them to go on to other things we have i know at least one student from that program who's become a national park service employee mm-hmm. uh, we have interns in that program who have moved on into the park service as well so uh, i think that uh, it's been a, a really great success in all of the communities that we've worked in uh, not only have have considered it a, a a really outstanding program but they they want to continue it, and, and they've worked really hard to work with us to be able to continue those programs in those communities as well. Um, so so that's, that's one example of, uh, of a, a program we've been doing. We've also been doing a program in Arizona, uh, which we've called uh, Linking Hispanic History Through Archaeology. And so in the Arizona area, we've taken uh, high school students and had them work on uh, on sites that, that are of Hispanic heritage and, again, as well, taking them out to national parks, to other kinds of uh, Hispanic heritage sites, work, with, um, work within their community doing oral histories, uh, working with, uh, again, with um, Indian communities on the reservation, uh, introducing them to science. So in that particular program, uh, we partnered with the University of Arizona, and so 
students uh, participated on projects in the six archaeology labs at the University of Arizona and, uh, and got a really thorough introduction, not just to archaeology, but to science in general. And I think for many of those kids, it kind of opened their eyes to new possibilities for their lives and where they might be able to, what they might be able to do and achieve as, uh, in going to college. And, and our first group that went through was extremely successful. Eight of those students, eight of the 10 students that went through actually did go on to college. And, uh, and I think it was pretty unique within that community that, that they found a way to, you know, to move forward with their, with their lives. And, um, and, and it, again, it's been, we're going to be in our third year of it next year. And it's just been, um, the community's been extremely excited about, about how it's, uh, how that's worked and moved forward. And we will be back with our final segment in this fascinating interview with uh, Dr. Stanley Bond of the National Park Service right after these words. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. No matter what your current situation is, you have a unique story to your life. It's a dynamically changing story that requires constant adjustments to lifestyle and environment. That includes your home. As you continue to enhance your living space, you are also making overall improvements to increase the value of your home. Join Laura Minniff each Tuesday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time for dynamic insights for your home environment on the Voice America Variety Channel. And start living now. Museums are great places to work and wonderful places to visit. But are they essential? How can we improve our museum practice so that museums remain vital and essential players in society? Listen for Museum Life with host Carol Bossert, where each week we'll discuss timely and topical issues of concern to the museum community. Museum Life can be heard live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Families today face unique challenges. Marriage, parenting, and family forms have changed a lot in the last century. Family Matters with Dr. Virginia Collin will focus on building and maintaining healthy family relationships. We will discuss marriage, divorce, family mediation, parenting, lifestyles, and mental health, all kinds of family matters. Our show will feature guest experts and your participation, too. You can listen to Family Matters live every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Can you do- 
This is Joe Schuldenrein with my special guest, Dr. Stanley Bond, who is the chief archaeologist for the National Park Service, and we're talking about the uh, programs that the National Park Service has instituted and is responsible for in uh, cultural resources management and in heritage preservation. Uh, Dr. Bond, tell us a little bit more about the outreach program because it is... uh, relatively new and, and, and sort of becoming one of the major success stories of the Park Service. I've certainly read about it in the press a little bit. Uh, what other kinds of outreach programs are you uh, involved with? Uh, well, the Park Service has also been involved with the um, African American Scuba Divers Association in a program called Youth Diving with a Purpose. And that program has been directed at um, potent shipwrecks that potentially brought um, brought slaves to into the United States. Uh, they've done projects at, um, at Biscayne National Park and uh, Gulf Islands National Park. Um, and they've also worked with the Slave Shipwreck Project in partnership with the um, Smithsonian Institution and George Washington University. So that's been a really, again, a really great way of introducing uh, kids and motivating kids uh, about using Park Service resources. Uh, we've also um, established uh, through, our, through our office a junior ranger program, and kids can get on to our site or to um, our National Park Service site and download a junior ranger booklet, which they fill out and learn about archaeology and how archaeologists do archaeology and mail it back in, and they get a certificate and, uh, and a patch from us so and become... Uh, junior ranger archaeologist through our program. And, and as well, uh, park programs, uh, all throughout the service are doing, uh, incredible types of outreach. So, uh, I was just up in Alaska and Alaska is doing culture parks where they bring in, uh, Alaska native kids and, uh, and allow them to work with archaeologists on archaeological sites, but at the same time they're learning, uh, learning re- or maybe relearning uh, their language and working with elders on uh, a variety of uh, traditional types of crafts and things. Um, many, many parks in the Southwest are bringing um, affiliated tribal kids in to work on archaeological sites. I know um, that uh, Buffalo River has been a big proponent of that and, and done that, but many parks in that area have been doing that. And so we, I think archaeology has been an important way of not only of both introducing kids to the Park Service, but also introducing kids to their own heritage. And this is a program that I'm imagining that you're going to be expanding as, as you go forward, and you probably have some uh, other programs in the, in the pipeline to expand the reach of, of the uh, outreach program. Well, we, we certainly hope to expand the outreach of all our programs and uh, continue to encourage parks to expand uh, their own outreach as well at the, at the park level. I want to expand the discussion here a little bit to uh, one of the missions that has always been uh, a topic of concern both to National Park Service and, and certainly to other uh, services in and the federal government that that deal with resources that are threatened, and we certainly know that in this age of climate change, 
there are major, major threats to our natural and uh, cultural resources as well. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how the Park Service looks at these uh, sort of short-term and long-term threats to our resources and how they are responding and developing programs going forward in that respect? Well, uh, you know, I think that there are many threats and many pressures on uh, cultural resources and parks. And, uh, you know, so we think of many of the traditional ones are pretty easy, things like looting and vandalism. I think may have just seen recently that a, a doctor in California was indicted on looting on federal lands, which included national parks in that area. Um, it's unfortunate that when we went through our shutdown uh, in 2012, looting increased in national parks. We know of several incidents that happened, and there was actually uh, um, a blog site which encouraged people to loot in national parks while there were less uh, staff there. Um, you may have seen uh, information or, or articles about the woman that was going onto federal lands, including national parks, and painting these big uh, these big pictures on rocks and things. And, and it also seems, especially that um, the petroglyphs seem to be at risk. That people look at them as graffiti, and so they want to add their own graffiti to them. And uh, so, just, yeah. uh, just a yeah. couple of years ago, we had a case with a Korean national who had done that, and um, and received a, a large fine, but unfortunately, that seems to be one of the one of the resources that gets more heavily hit than than others. Um, of course, for many parks, uh, adjacent development has been uh, has been a, a big impact. Uh, I worked in a park that had uh, thirty eight uh, adjacent um, subdivisions. Uh, and we had five roads that went through the park. We had 98,000 cars or drive a day drive through our park. And so, uh, we see that, you know, that impacts, uh, cultural resources in many ways. It certainly impacts our cultural landscape, but, you know, people coming into those parks from those areas, um, do a variety of damage, you know, establishing new social trails within the parks. Um, right. Visitation in parks can be, a big issue. Um, there was a study done at Mesa Verde in which uh, they looked at the front country sites where people visited on a regular basis to see how many artifacts were left on the surface, and there were virtually no artifacts left where where they went and looked at comparable sites in the back country. And you may have over 100 artifacts per square meter within uh, within a grid there. But you know, so what what's happening is, of course, people are. Visitors are going out there and picking up artifacts because they want, they think maybe a souvenir for their, or even, you know, they just want that feel of, of, you know, touch and that tactile sense that they're, that they're touching history. But, um, but of course we try to promote people. I mean, so as an example, not a park service example, but, uh, recently in the paper, um, the cast from, uh, from the new movie Maze Runner, uh, Dylan O'Brien talked about they were uh, they were filming on an important uh, archaeological and sacred site in New Mexico, and they were told that, and they were they were given a long lecture about it, and not to pick up anything, and not to pick up rocks. And so, in his interview, he said, "So of course we did, you know." And there's that kind of a narcissistic tendency wow. to just want to, you know to to want to take things from from sites. And so it's interesting that, um, that one of his fans started a, a petition to 
have them return those items to to the site and uh, with had um, over 40,000 signatures the last thing I saw. So, you know, it's interesting that you had that. But uh, certainly one of the most important uh, threats, I think, to archaeological resources in the system uh, is going to be um, global climate change. And, and it happens in a number of areas, uh, and some of them are obvious and some are maybe less obvious, but um, sea level rise is one obvious change, and we're going to see uh, sites that are eroded away due to, uh, due to rising sea levels, both uh, along the ocean front on barrier islands and behind, uh, and b- behind in the bay, in different bay areas, and, and just rising sea levels are going to drown archaeological sites as well as just erode them away. Um, we know that precipitation changes, again, are going to create uh, lots of kinds of erosive issues, um, and precipitation changes are also creating high, uh, fire changes in fire patterns and uh, fires that, that burn hotter and can damage sites. And, uh, and, and then in, in the Arctic areas, which are warming more than any other parts of the, of the globe, uh, melting glaciers, melting per, uh, exposed all kinds of artifacts that have been frozen uh, for thousands of years in some cases, uh, melting permafrost, uh, creates uh, soil affliction and uh, and and sites uh, just become you know almost liquefied and all of the stratigraphy is lost and as well after as the permafrost is melting new plants and shrubs come in and establish themselves in sites and destroy them um, ice barriers aren't forming in in parts of Alaska that used to protect the coast from uh, large coastal waves and so we're seeing in some areas as much as you know. 40 feet of, of shoreline washed away every year. So we do see that those things are happening, and we know that we're going to lose archaeological sites that way. And, and that's part of the reason we're looking at new ways of documenting sites so we at least have some new information, some information left uh, when those sites are lost. Well, I, I was thinking of that um, because that's that's obviously one of the most uh, imminent situations, and and I would I would think that it might not be a bad idea to develop sort of a comprehensive program or protocol for the Park Service because they they are capable of doing these things for uh, archaeology and climate change, sort of a manual on how to to look at areas that are in danger, to sort of prioritize uh, your own programs for that sort of thing, because you are a pioneering organization, and uh, certainly in the private sector, there are going to be new new programs that deal with this sort of thing. FEMA certainly deals with it on a large scale. Have you given any thought to developing sort of a comprehensive program on archaeology, climate change, and the dangers to, to archaeological sites? Well, we do have a climate change program in the Park Service, and there is an uh-huh. archaeologist as part of that program, and she has been developing just what you're talking about, protocols, uh, looking at, um, you know, doing risk assessments, uh, thinking about um, significance of sites and which ones are we going to try to um, to do, you know, mitigation on and try to preserve data that way, which ones are we just going to record and we just know that they're going to go away, that we're not going to have the, the money or the time to be able to preserve all of the data that's going to be lost due to, due to climate change. And so uh, we're definitely working uh, in that direction, uh, you know, 
as quickly, I think, as we can uh, in recognizing that the need that, you know, climate change is upon us and, and we need to do something as soon as we can with many of these sites. And where do you see the uh, sort of the general thrust of the Park Service archaeology program going? I mean, obviously, one of them is in the direction of uh, disasters that uh, that you and I have just talked about. But what are the uh, what what are the future directions of the Park Service program? I'm I'm guessing that outreach and and the climate change situation are certainly things that are on your agenda. Uh, what else? Well, I you know, in many ways, I think those are the those are Many of our biggest things is, is preservation of the sites, promotion of archaeology, uh, bringing in new audiences, uh, reaching out to diverse audiences. Um, you know that we're definitely as well. Though we're looking at uh, some other important issues like um, artifact curation and what is it that you know our curation facilities right now are are at the bursting point. You know so. What is it that we need to actually bring in and, and store and preserve for um, in perpetuity? And what is it that we might be able to study in the field but not have to bring back into a curation facility? So, you know, I think those are some guidelines that are going to become very important, not just to us, but to the, you know, broader uh, field of archaeology in terms of thinking about, you know, what, what are we going to be doing in the future to... Um, you know, to preserve the data that we need from, from archaeological sites. How about uh, your interactions with other federal agencies? Because our experience is that a lot of federal agencies are involved in some of these creative programs, including site preservation, uh, non-destructive, ex- non- non-destructive archaeological exploration. Do you work in conjunction with other branches of the federal government that have archaeology divisions to uh, to de- uh, create overarching programs? Like, for example, it would seem to me that there's sort of a natural fit between the Park Service and, and say, uh, the Corps of Engineers with respect to uh, issues of uh, sea level rise and that sort of thing. Do you do you do cooperative ventures with other branches of the government, or is that not possible? Well, we we do, and in and in fact, we have what we would call the Federal Archaeology Program, and and that is part of the Departmental Consulting Archaeologists' role is to bring federal archaeologists together on a regular basis to discuss issues of mutual interest, and so we do have federal archaeology meetings. Uh, once a, at least once a year, if not more often, and we also have a federal archaeology report that goes out and uh, to let people know some of the types of projects that are going on within the within the federal government. And is, uh, you've you've identified the major issues and that these are critical. Um, where, how do you see the the program of the Park Services? Is it in any danger from uh, for, from defunding and budget cutting issues, or or is that looking reasonably good going forward? Well, I mean, I think that um, I think that right now that our our program is um, is reasonably strong, but we can certainly use some additional uh, people in the field to to work with some of these issues. You know, especially. As we see, you know, as climate change begins to truly affect archaeological sites, you know, how are we going to preserve that information with the, you know, with the personnel that we have, or or at least you know fund other groups that might be able to come in and help us uh, preserve that preserve that information. So, 
you know, we we certainly um, we certainly can can use you know more help within the within the service or within the parks to uh, to to sustain our cultural resources. And on that note, I'm afraid we're going to have to wrap up this very very exciting and significant discussion with uh, the head of the National Park Service for Cultural Resources and Archaeology, uh, Dr. Stanley Bond. Thank you so much for participating on the program. Well, thank you for having me on. And until next time, this is Joe Shulden Ryan, and we will be presenting another episode next week. And good evening, and thank you for tuning in. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.